Xtox connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. Before we begin today's show, we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Gilson. Looking for ways to automate your tedious lab tasks? Gilson can help. We automate sample dispensing and transfers so you can walk away and focus on your research. Choose from pre-configured systems or assemble your own to match your application. We blend in with your existing lab workflows so you can avoid reworking your already established procedures. Gilson can even support you with protocol development to speed up your time to automation. Go your own way with our scalable and precise robotic liquid handling systems. Head to go.gilson.com slash xtalks to learn more or speak to an expert. That's go.gilson.com slash xtalks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Sarah Hand, Editor-in-Chief at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by a special guest, Dr. Jillian Woolett, who is the VP and Head of Regulatory Strategy and Policy at Samsung BioEpis. Established in 2012, Samsung BioEpis is a biopharmaceutical company committed to realizing healthcare that is accessible to everyone. They continue to advance a broad pipeline of biosimilar candidates that cover a spectrum of therapeutic areas, including immunology, oncology, ophthalmology, hematology, and endocrinology. Dr. Woolett is an experienced senior executive with demonstrated history working across the health policy sector in the U.S. and globally. Before joining Samsung BioEpis in 2021, she worked at Avalier Health, a healthcare business consulting firm, and Engel & Novit, a boutique law firm whose clients include biopharma and medical device companies. She earned her master's in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge and her doctorate in immunology from the University of Oxford. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Willett. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So could you start off by talking about your experience and, and when you joined Samsung BioEpis? So I've been involved in monoclonal antibodies, which today comprise the leading class of biologic medicines since they were invented in the late 70s, 80s. Indeed, I knew Cesar Milstein at Cambridge who invented them and then worked on them for my PhD in Oxford. Then I worked on malaria vaccines in academia and with various federal agencies in the US on their research programs before spending time at Pharma and Bio, the trade associations of the originator industries in the US. That's a long time. It's a scary number of decades. <laughs> and while we had huge successes with biotech, we can question why it's taken so long and why today biosimilars are remotely in doubt. So when I joined Samsung BioEpist in the fall of 2021, it was under 10 years old. But they now have, now we have six biosimilars approved in by the EMA, FDA, and in something like 40 markets around the world. So mm. that's rapid progress. That's why I joined Samsung BioEpis. We're making rapid progress when the history has been very, very slow in many ways in biotech as a regulatory matter. And we need to continue to build up that speed. So these are very exciting times. 
That's great. So could you tell me then about your experience uh, in working with pharma and bio, those industry trade organizations, and how that background influences your work at Samsung BioEpis? So at Pharma, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, very US focused, I staffed the industry biotechnology group that developed comparability with the FDA in 1996. And this became the scientific basis for biosimilars, even though our efforts back then were to allow manufacturing changes to originate products. And then I joined Bio, and Bio was and still is finding its feet as it has to reconcile tiny companies, huge companies, and also deal in green, which is agricultural biotech, white mm. engineering biotech, as well as so-called red health biotech. So it's got a lot to handle a real big mix. But they also, a bio, include all the pharma members and have members in every stage of development in every state in the US. So it's broadly representative of the biotech industry. We saw everything. And what I saw at both pharma and, and at bio is that the originator biotech issues are much the same as those for biosimilars. After all, biosimilars are a subset of biologics, and each has a specific originator biotech reference product. So together, they form the virtuous cycle of medicines that enable competition and the surety of supply and better access to what are, let's say, quite frankly, marvelous medicines. So I have never seen it as a zero-sum game. It is not originators versus biosimilars. In fact, the originators are the future of biosimilars if we can build a system regulatorily and commercially that works for all. And so what do you believe are some of the major challenges then in bringing biosimilars to market today? So we've got to improve the efficiency of development. We've got to reduce the cost, we've got to reduce the time, and we already have the science to support this. And But reducing regulatory burdens are very, very tough. Regulatory certainty is essential. We don't want to take risks, but I would include opportunities here for both streamlining, which is reducing unnecessary clinical studies, and also enabling global comparative products, because if the reference product for a biosimilar is global, then surely the biosimilar can be global as well. So building this regulatory predictability, building the harmonization, building the reliance in, then allows us to be more efficient, that allows us to be more cost effective in the development of biosimilars, that allows greater access. However, IQVIA did a recent report that said fully 50% of the biologics facing loss of exclusivity within the next 10 years have no biosimilars being made to them at all. Wow. And with biosimilars taking eight to 10 years to develop up to $500 million per product, we've got a problem if we don't make that development more efficient. So there's an urgency to it as well. And it's tough, especially in the US on the commercial side where pricing is very obtuse. So the bottom line is we can't have brand development costs for a biosimilar and generic pricing, and then expect a sustainable biologics market anywhere in the world. And mm. the US role in this, when we're 60% by dollar value of the global biologics market, for 4% of the world's population, is obviously particularly critical. Mm. Uh, and now switching gears a little uh, to talk about interchangeable status. So there are now a few biosimilars that have been granted that interchangeable status by the FDA. 
Um, what do you think the future looks like for interchangeables? And, and do you think the benefit of pharmacists just being able to fill a prescription for that branded uh, biologic with its biosimilar counterpart is enough of a benefit for biosimilars makers to pursue this regulatory pathway? Number of important fundamental points here. So an interchangeable biologic is the identical product already approved by FDA as a biosimilar. It's not mm -hmm. better, it's not in any way different, it's identical. And the designation is to allow other than the original prescriber to do the substitution. Mm -hmm. Given that most biologics are administered by the physicians who prescribe them, it shouldn't be a relevant designation for most patients. Mm. So interchangeability is a legal distinction. It's not a clinical one because the product itself is the same as the biosimilar. However, the term is very badly misunderstood and the need for the additional designation may delay access if physicians think they need it. It may delay access by some patients to biosimilars when those biosimilars are already available, given it's a second step. That would be particularly unfortunate. So the education by the regulators, but also individual companies like Samsung Bioethics will be, continue to be important. And FDA is very engaged on this interchangeability issue. And we hear many FDA is saying they wish there wasn't a second designation in Europe. We already have the regulators there saying every biosimilar is already interchangeable. And FDA itself has said every biosimilar is already interchangeable for the purposes of physician prescribing because of that statutory difference. Mm, interesting. I appreciate you making that distinction. That is a, a clarification I haven't heard before. So I and think, we'll, uh, pro we'll make a paper available to anybody who wants it. We wrote this up because of this confusion in the peer reviewed literature, and we can provide that reference along with this podcast. Wonderful. Link open access. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you very much. Um, and so uh, Samsung Bioepis recently released its first U.S. biosimilar market report. Uh, and one of the most interesting findings is that despite their potential you know, for offering cost savings, some biosimilars have failed to gain even half of the market share for a given indication. So could you shed some light on the challenges of biosimilar uptake? So the financial incentives depend on the decision maker and the money flows. And as such, high rebates based on high list prices may govern the product chosen to be placed on a formulary by a particular health plan. And if a biosimilar is not on the formulary, it won't be prescribed. Hmm. Patients won't get it at all. So biosimilars can save money by, for example, encouraging a reduction in price of their originator reference product. But if they don't get that market share, then the competitive market will not be sustainable. And in many case, cases, higher list prices provide the higher rebates to the key decision makers and encourage mm. the use of the more expensive product. This also means that patients pay more out of pocket because any of their copays are based on the list price, not mm. the rebated price. So I'm a scientist. Others at Samsung Bioethics have greater expertise on commercial matters. And I'm sure they'd be happy to elaborate reimbursement in the US being particularly complicated. As I like to say, the science is the easy bit, not because it's trivial, but because it's more rational, perhaps, than commercialization of prescription drugs in the United States. Mm. 
And uh, what are some regulatory factors that have contributed to the increased usage of biosimilars in, uh, in areas like oncology, supportive care, immunology? So the science and the core regulatory requirements are the same for every biosimilar, irrespective of the therapeutic area. But the understanding by the healthcare providers has to be revisited each time a new physician and patient population is given the opportunity to use them. So fortunately, our leading regulators, FDA and EMA, have become more involved in education, but biosimilar sponsors are also having to take on a particular role in their therapeutic area of interest to ensure that all stakeholders fully understand that the biosimilars will give the same clinical results as their reference products. And we need to improve the efficiency of development, and we already have the science to support that, but the regulatory certainty is tough to achieve and the understanding by all the stakeholders is tough to achieve. So while we need the streamlining and the global comparative product, particularly if the reference product is already available everywhere, that's only a start. The regulatory predictability is essential and if the originator used as the reference product is global, then the biosimilar should be too, but the understanding by the patients and the providers everywhere has to catch up with that science and with what biosimilars have the potential to offer by way of savings. Mm, okay, certainly some challenges there then. Um, and you've touched on this a little bit, but how do regulatory standards and approval processes for biosimilars compare across different regions and how might these differences influence the global biosimilar market? Well, again, going back to the scientific basis of all of our biotech medicines, what's really nice is the science is the same everywhere. And if nothing else, COVID taught us that one, right? Mm. So many of the development and regulatory challenges for biosimilars also already apply to all other biologics. And that brings us back to the need for regulatory efficiency and consistency for bio all biologics, indeed all medicines, but the laws are different. So we have to again deal with this legal distinction but the good news is that the US and Europe are continuing to lead with their oversight of biotech, and they've approved quality, safe, and effective medicines largely consistently between the two major jurisdictions. And so it does make sense to foster regulatory harmonization and some level of reliance on these standards all around the world. And there's attempts to do that in terms of consistent quality for manufacturing certain what they call GMPs that are used worldwide. And then we also have the World Health Organization having a role. And they recently, last year, revised their biosimilar guidelines to reflect the regulatory progress and opportunity for streamlining. So our experience at Samsung BioEpis will serve us well with all biologics in the highly regulated markets, but also well beyond. If it's an accepted product in the US or Europe, most other countries, that's the product they want anyway. And we already have six biosimilars approved in the highly regulated markets, and they're available in something around 40 countries in the world. So in our short life, we've gained a lot of experience, and there's no question a lot of other countries want access to biosimilars of this caliber. But these legal quirks that are part of the approach different countries take to their approval and availability of medicines are going to be important to consider. But there's no scientific barriers per se. 
Okay, so what are some of the um, barriers to the broader use of biosimilars? So the biggest challenges are commercial, especially when there's complex reimbursement systems that have perverse incentives that can actually encourage the use of the most expensive product. So those do need to be more transparent so that we can encourage the use of the most cost-effective medicines in a manner that the patients themselves can afford. And today, way too many patients don't have timely access to these truly marvelous biotech medicines. These aren't saturated markets. There's people that need these medicines. And I would find particularly that in progressive diseases, that means great pain and disability for these patients. And that shouldn't be the case. And that is occurring even in rich countries like the US and the EU. So making biosimilars efficiently and cost-effectively can change a lot of lives, but it does need to be balanced by getting them to the market more efficiently, more quickly, and available to more patients through systems and healthcare systems particularly in a manner that actually supports early access, particularly for some of these debilitating degenerative diseases. And that's what we at Samsung BioEpis are planning to do but some of the systems are not trivial to fix. Hmm. Okay, so moving along then, uh, what are some of the more exciting events uh, on the horizon that can help accelerate the use of biosimilars? So as we've discussed earlier, the science is asked and answered, and all of the biosimilars approved to date in the highly regulated markets have behaved exactly as they would be expected to behave clinically, exactly in the same manner as their reference products, They've shown no unusual or unexpected outcomes or adverse events. And it's also been shown that they can be safe, safely switched for their reference products, even on patients already established on the reference product. So that shows that the companies, Samsung Biopis included, know how to make the biosimilars. Our regulatory approaches have been sound. We've used the science sensibly. The regulators are understanding what they're approving. So we now need to make this regulatory environment more efficient and more predictable for sponsors so that biosimilars can be made to other than these major blockbusters. Mm. That will encourage competition and that then in turn encourages affordability and access to the products more broadly, perhaps even for orphan products, but there's significant issues that arise for orphans in terms of some of the regulatory approaches. So if we can streamline development by reducing these clinical studies that it's been shown don't tell us anything anyway, we already know the answer from the earlier analytics and PK, and we can assure, ensure the global reference product, we can have global biosimilars too. We can have that single development program supplying the world to redevelop a biosimilar to the same reference for every jurisdiction clearly makes no sense and blocks access, particularly in the less well-off countries. So it's this balance of not changing the quality, safety, and efficacy of the biosimilar, but allowing it theoretically to be available to 8 billion people instead of 330 million in the US or 450 million in Europe that becomes essential to this, this access affordability question. Okay, so you referenced some issues then that are more specific to orphan products. Are there, do you want to go into that a little bit more? Um, we can discuss. Orphans are traditionally to very small numbers of patients and historically, mm -hmm. as a result, the medicines are very expensive. 
because there's a very small number of patients, you can't just be repeating clinical studies because the patients mm. aren't available for those studies. Right. So that's clearly one issue. Now, what we've already shown scientifically in the peer-reviewed literature is those clinical studies aren't telling you anything anyway. Mm. So if we could do some of these regulatory reforms around streamlining and also on the global comparative product, that will help orphans. The challenge is actually probably even more the mid-tier products that aren't blockbusters, aren't orphans. Where is the cutoff on development of a biosimilar being feasible? Because those are the products that are in the 50% of originator products that have, currently have no biosimilars in development. So orphans make certain valuable points, but given we don't need a lot of the comparative clinical efficacy studies anyway for any biosimilar, there's a broader point to be made too. Interesting. Okay, thank you for elaborating on that. Um, you recently gave a talk at the World Biosimilar Congress. So what would you say was the key takeaway from your presentation there? So we were future looking. And broadly speaking, I would say the science is asked and answered. Everybody was agreeing on that. And everyone was very confident. Of course, these are people largely very experienced in biologics and regulators as well. Very confident that the biosimilars are behaving appropriately clinically. However, there was also this recognition that even biosimilars are still too expensive to develop and it takes too long, and this is limiting patient access, even in the US. So this need for revisiting and streamlining development was something that I think was very well accepted and broadly agreed we know how to do it, reducing some of these clinical studies. And also this can enable the access to the low and middle income countries to quality biosimilars. There's a concern that some of the products made elsewhere in the world aren't of appropriate quality. And mm. um, we at Samsung are adamant that we're not providing a less quality product to the poorer countries in the world. We're mm. supplying a single biosimilar to the standards acceptable in Europe and the US. So working with US to help this happen, the availability is very important. So many of these steps also apply to all biologics. And having developed the capabilities, I think we can look to broaden our portfolio too. But I think the most compelling thing at that meeting was nobody was really felt responsible for making the changes that would make this happen. I feel a certain urgency to these changes in order to get more biosimilars available, especially mm -hmm. to that 50% that have none in development within the next 10 years. Could we bring them back into the fold if the development time wasn't eight to 10 years and wasn't $500 million? So this urgency, I think the difficulty was who owns the urgency? of changing these regulatory processes such that we can have sustainability and competition for the biosimilar sponsors now and not 10 years down the road when if the model doesn't work, we won't have any sponsors left. Mm, thank you. Um, and so what's next for Samsung BioEpis? So we are a very young company, as you pointed out, under 12 years old, and we're full of very young, bright people, I like to say, and it's in our materials, the average age is 33 hmm. for a thousand people. So having shown we can make biosimilars in the highly regulated markets, and Samsung now having established the CDMO, or Contract Development and Manufacturing Organization, that is the largest in the world, we're also finding our policy voice. 
both in the US and well beyond. And this can help ensure that our willingness to compete enables patients to benefit through this access and affordability priority to these mar marvelous medicines and that that opportunity is better understood. However, I keep coming back to biosimilar development has to be regulatorily feasible and commercially sustainable. And those are sort of almost the teeter-totter. We need both. We can make them more efficiently, but say, hypothesis, we could half the time and half the price. We still need to fix the commercial environment. We can't have a brand development model and a generic pricing model. Mm. That doesn't give us a sustainable opportunity to make these competitive biologics available. And we also know we can be an originator too. And um, so we're not seeing a ceiling to what we've already shown that we will be able to achieve in the future. So our policy voice is very future looking and the global regulatory environment has to accommodate these aspirations. And those are many others, obviously, from patients to providers, if the full promise of biotech is to be achieved, both originator and biosimilars to them in a healthy competitive framework. And that's the future, given that biotech is already showing just what it can do for new medicines, whether it's original vaccines or whether it's all the way through to cell and gene therapy. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Woolett, and, and with some of those uh, you know, key take-home messages, I think this has been a very productive conversation. And Excellent. that's the end of this episode of the Xox Life Science Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next week for another episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com, or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.